Welcome back to another episode of the Education Movement Podcast. My name is Henry Rivera, and I will be the host for the show. In this episode, I am joined by one of my childhood friends, Ashley Escalante. Ashley is a speech-language pathologist who has experience working with people with various forms of disabilities. Throughout our conversation, we discuss what speech-language pathology is, what the practice of SLPs looks like, and how we can best help our students with various disabilities. I hope you enjoyed this episode just as much as I enjoyed making it. See you on the other side. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Today, I am joined by a very unique guest. She's my friend, Ashley Escalante, who is a speech-language pathologist. As an undergrad, she was a linguistics major at UCLA, then got her master's degree from Cal State Long Beach in speech-language pathology. She has experience working with children in schools and adults in a hospital setting. However, she currently works in a school district in the South Bay with K-12 students. Ashley is fluent in English, Spanish, and French, and is getting quite good with Italian. Ashley, my dear old friend, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am very good. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for joining me. When I heard you were a speech language pathologist, I actually got really excited because I've, I've never had one of those here in my show. I don't even think we have one of those at my school. Really? Yeah. Wait, we don't have one at your school? Okay. Wait, I don't that think so. That is a whole conversation in itself. Yeah. If you can, I don't know if you know of anyone in the New Orleans area that would be interested. I'm sure we would bring them on board. Well, I'm very happy to be here and give you a little bit of perspective from the Absolutely. speech and language pathologist side. Yes. And I hear not only are you fluent in three languages, but you're getting, uh, sorry, four languages, right? Because you're getting pretty good with Italian. But you also, I am. <laughs> but you also, uh, you're getting pretty good with Arabic as well, right? Or you at least studied Arabic for a solid year? I studied Arabic for a solid year. I wouldn't say I'm getting better at it. If anything, I've been losing it a little bit. Uh, you know what they say, if you don't use it, you lose it. Yes, so. indeed. What, is there, a, I don't know, maybe a, a phrase you can teach me right now in Arabic that I can say? Okay. Um, yes, I can say, um, which is like a, an equivalent of, I love you, I like you type thing. Ooh, okay. How do you say it again? Ana. Ana. Ohebuka. Ohebuka. Kethiran. Kethiran. Okay. What but if you mean? were saying, but that, but that would be if you were saying it to a guy. If you were saying it to a girl, you'd have to end with Ana Ohebuki. Ohebuki. Okay. But would that be inappropriate for me to tell a student? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think okay. I'd go there. <laughs> but you could say, oh, but if you wanted to say this to a student, you could say Mumtaz. That means excellent. Mm, okay. I'm going to keep that in mind. Although, you know, I know the, uh, the dialect that my students speak is uh, they're Arabic from, from Palestine. So I know that last time we talked about this, you, you, I think you said yeah. you were more common with the Egyptian. I mean, yeah, right, with an Egyptian Yeah, Arabic. so I studied Arabic at UCLA for a year. And the Arabic that they teach there is known as the Fusha, or the standard Egyptian. So it's the one that you would see um, in the media uh, it's this, the, the standard. It's the common language among all the Arabic-speaking countries. So they usually speak their own country specific to where they're from, and then they speak this as a common language between each other. So sometimes it's so different that you wouldn't understand each other if you were from one country or another. So this is yeah. the common thread that holds them together, like the communication yeah. together. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. I've, I actually learned a couple of Arabic phrases from one of my students that I had in the summer, and he's from Yemen. And then I said some of those words to my Palestinian students and they were like, what? 
and I was like, it's it's Arabic. I thought that's how you said Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it, I definitely that had that experience. Really? <laughs> right. yeah. I feel proud and I want to share. It and they're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, oops. <laughs> Never mind. So, okay. So we know that you're a little bit of a language nerd. Can you tell us more about yourself? So if you were to okay. summarize yourself in a few sentences. Well, uh, what can I say? I am a language nerd, as you said. I, um, I grew up bilingual, Spanish, English speaking, and I, my mom was very adamant about us speaking Spanish. In fact, you know, we would come home from school and she'd have Spanish homework waiting for us. She wanted us to, to be able to read it, write it, speak it. And so um, I grew up with both. And when I got to high school, all of my friends were you know, taking Spanish because that was the easy way to go. <laughs> but they were off also offering French. And I always thought that I wanted to travel. And so France was one of the places that I wanted to travel to. And so I decided to take the French. And I remember some of my friends being like, why are you taking that? You know, you're never going to use it. And I remember being like, oh, yes, I am. <laughs> and, you know, I eventually did. I, uh, when I was in undergrad, I decided to continue taking French. It's actually my minor. So mm -hmm. I took all of the the language classes and after started taking literature and debate classes and whatnot. And my last year in undergrad, I did a, a semester abroad. So I was in Bordeaux and it was one of the best experiences of my life. And I became much more fluent, obviously, just being there and uh, being somewhere where English is not the language of the majority. So it was a wonderful experience. And did you, did you feel that when people, I'm sorry, when you were in France, that people were very welcoming to you because you spoke French or was Absolutely. there that? Okay. Cause like, I think there's, there's this like common uh, conception. I don't know if it's a misconception, but that French sometimes can be, I don't know, not so welcoming if you're not much of a French speaker. I think when you are in a country, when you're in your home country and you have guests, visitors come and, and you know, they want you to speak their language, I think that um, it can be very intimidating and I can see that negative reaction from them. So I think that's usually what happens. I've never had a negative experience, but I've always, you know, tried to speak French. So even if you're, even just for effort, they, they appreciate it. It's, I think it's out of respect to their culture too, to try even a few words, even if you don't know anything, but thank you and hello, if you say those things, I think it makes a big difference. That's fantastic. That's, that's great for me to know so if I ever make and my know, way out there. Fun fact. I actually started learning Italian in France. <laughs> Get out. How does that happen? <laughs> um, I had to take, well, I was taking a few of my university courses and I had one elective I had to take. I didn't know what I wanted to take. Uh, I knew that I was going to be visiting Italy. So I thought, hey, why, why don't I just learn a few things in Italian before I go? And so I enrolled in the class and um, it was funny because, you know, my professor was French speaking Italian. And so I took Italian for, for a semester, and when I came back home, I continued taking it for the year. But when I came back, I was speaking Italian with a French accent, and it took a while for that to go away and to get like, I don't know what accent I have now. I don't, it's like some cross between uh, Spanish and English. I don't know, but I did have like, I could feel like the tension and the vowels um, when I was saying it, but I, it was just more me fine tuning what I was hearing and, and, and imitating that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So from there, you know, you're, you're, you're traveling, you're learning all these new languages. How do you then stumble upon speech language pathology? Okay, well, I mean, 
the profession of speech and language pathology has always been something prominent in my life. You know, I, I grew up with a younger brother who has autism. So he's uh, five years younger. So from the time that, you know, as early as I can remember, uh, there's always been a speech language pathologist in my life through him. And I never really thought about the career so much. I just, I remember being very observant and really trying to capture what they were doing because um, I was fascinated by the fact that my brother, you know, didn't speak the way we did. He didn't seem to behave the way we did. And, and I, uh, you know, it was a learning process for myself and for my family too. I think back then autism awareness wasn't as extended as it is now. And so I think as a family, we all learned about it and, um, and the speech and language component came with that. Um, I grew up with it all my life, you know, trying to figure out ways to encourage him to speak. And I'll, actually, I'll tell you the story of our first conversation um, at some point. But I will say that it wasn't until my last year of undergrad that I took a course in language delays and language disorders. And when I took that course, I was really just astounded and very interested in the idea of what happens when you don't have all the language skills and what happens when you lose them and how do you get back to it or how do you catch up is can you ever catch up can you ever fully recover what you lose and and that's what really drew me in and and then having that and then the connection to all of my past experiences with my brother it just made sense to me to go for this career got it and Maybe I'm going to bounce that question right back to you. Can can that ever be recovered? Can you ever catch up if you have some of those language skills missing? I think that's definitely on a case-by-case -case basis. I think there's a lot of factors that come into play when you think of those things. Uh, just to give you an example, you know, if we're talking about somebody with a stroke, you know, where did the stroke happen? What's the extent of the damage? How early did they seek medical help? You know, what were, what was their education level prior to the stroke? What kind of family support do they have? What's the social emotional status of the, of the person? All of these factors come into play. So it's really hard to say that somebody can recover at all or catch up all the way. You know, it really just depends on a number of factors. But I will say that for children, you know, early intervention is one of the key things that's always emphasized. and for adults, obviously, the more support that they have, the more likely that you'll see recovery. So that makes me think about your experience working in hospitals, right, as you talked about strokes. So you worked in hospitals and you've worked at schools, and it seems to me like you've chosen to stick to the, the field of education. How come? Okay. Um, in part, you know, when I was in university, we had a nonprofit clinic at the time where we were um, assigned to complete a certain number of our clinical practicum hours. And so we got to work with all kinds of populations. And um, I really enjoyed doing every single one. It was hard to choose, like to, to ever say that I had to make this choice and be completely sure um, of whether I wanted to work with children or adults. I don't think I've ever really had to make that choice. But uh, I will say that my first internship outside of campus was at Rancho Los Amigos uh, Rehabilitation Center in Downey, California. And um, 
I did a lot of transitional rehab and outpatient rehab with individuals recovering from stroke, from traumatic brain injury, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the various, <laughs> the various individuals that I worked with, and I was absolutely certain that that's where I wanted to be. I was like, you know what, hospital setting, that's the way I'm going, this is it. Then fast forward uh, to my second internship on a, in a school campus, I had to work with students and I was kind of split between elementary and high school level. I was actually a little bit uh, uneasy about the elementary students. I think because apart from my younger brother, I've never really spent too much time around children. And so I had spent a little bit of time at the clinic at school, but uh, it was still something relatively new for me. So I worked with the two groups and it was a whole nother world. And I think that I just grew an appreciation for it. And then I was torn, okay, which one do I do? <laughs> so ultimately when I graduated and I started looking for jobs, the process for getting into a hospital is a little more extensive than it is to get into a school. I had a lot of job offers for schools from the get-go. With the hospitals, it was something that I'd have to wait for. So I did apply to both. And ultimately, I uh, took the school district job. I wanted to start working and, you know, student loans also asked me to start working. <laughs> <laughs> they called on me to start working. No, but um, so I started working there and I really enjoyed it. Again, assigned to elementary and high school. And it was a very uh, welcoming campus. The district was amazing. It is amazing. I still work with them and they hired me I remember specifically looking for somebody bilingual. There's not too many of us. You know, at the time, I was the third SLP with a Spanish language among what were a group of like 45, 50 specialists. Wow. So we're, we're rare. We are. Or here we are. So um, I took the job and I've loved it ever since. And I've had a lot of experiences with this site. You know, right now I'm doing elementary school, high school, and I also have a special assignment at a psychiatric facility in Cerritos, California. I work with teenagers there and it's been a very unique experience, very challenging population, but it was something that I was offered. I took it as a learning opportunity and it just, you know, I feel like the more experiences you get, the more well-rounded you are. And I didn't say no, I didn't say goodbye to adults. I actually work for a private practice as well. So whenever the opportunity arises, I do have an opportunity to, uh, to work with adult population. <laughs> You're a bit of a workaholic then. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> I, I, I love my job, and it, you know, but it allow, I have a pretty consistent routine and, and you know, it's sound, I, I work a lot. It's true, but I also, I, you know, work hard, play harder. I love to travel. So it's, it, yeah. it, it's a good way to fund, fund my adventures. And from these different groups that you're working with, do you have one that you like working with more than the rest? Hmm. No, that's I a hard do, question. Okay, no, fair enough. Because I do figure that your approaches must be a little different for each group, right? Like you can't. They are, but I like that. I like being able to wear different hats. I think if I was only working with one group, then I might feel like I don't like it. Not because I actually don't like it, or maybe just because I, I want the the ability to to change from one thing to another. I think that's what I love about my job. It's so dynamic in nature and you never know what you're going to get. And even when you're working with children or adults or whoever you're working with, everybody is so different. You never get the same case. 
So if it wasn't for talking to you, I actually wouldn't know exactly what a speech pathologist is because, you know, uh, like say when you and I were going to high school together, I don't, I don't know if we even had one. I, do you know if we even had one? In, we, we did have school? one. <laughs> did? Okay. So maybe it's just because I, I didn't need the services of one or no one around me did. So can you tell us more of what it is, what is a speech uh, language pathologist and what does this person do? What's their role? Okay. So a speech and language pathologist, I'm going to just sum it up as briefly as I can. But if we're thinking of one of some of our most important functions in our life, eating and (laughs) communicating and thinking, those are all categories that fall into speech and language. So when we think speech, we're, t- we're thinking um, the way we produce sounds. We're thinking the fluidity in which we speak. We're thinking our, the quality of our voice. If we're thinking language, we're thinking about how we verbalize our thoughts and our ideas, what we're understanding, how we're processing information. Also, the, how we interact with others and the social rules that come into that. I feel like a lot of, uh, when we think of speech and language, if you really break it down, there's all these things that make us a good communicator, but we never really think about them because they're just so instinctual to us. Mm-hmm. But these are all things that we work on. And then as far as the eating piece, um, you know, we work on swallowing. This is more in the hospital-based setting, but anything pretty much from your esophagus up to your brain is within our scope of practice. So, you know, even, you know, when we're thinking memory, cognition, attention, those are all factors that go into being a good communicator. And so, um, yeah, it's big scope. But in a nutshell, I'm throwing all these words out just because these are all words that we can connect to right away that we know we can recognize right off the bat. And those are all things that we do and all things that we work on. Yeah, see, I'm really fascinated with that because you're saying you're teaching people how to, I mean, do all kinds of different things, our pronunciation and um, and eating, eating and swallowing, like you wouldn't think, I don't think anyone has ever had to teach me that. So I wouldn't know how to teach someone else how to do that. Like, well, I think you- what, what I mean by that is, for example, um, you know, when you have uh, muscles, you know, that are responsible for swallowing and maybe they're weakened because of some kind of trauma to the brain or, you know, some kind of condition, then you have to modify diets because maybe the maybe the person is choking on a certain consistency of food. And if they, if it goes in the airway, then it can cause pneumonia and then it can be lethal. So in reality, teaching to swallow, it's more of like teaching strategies for more effective swallowing, making sure that you're protecting your airway. It's all about uh, safety and, and making sure that it's something we call it least restrictive. I'm sure you're familiar with that least restrictive environment, least restrictive conditions. The most important thing when we're working with patients is to offer them options that will support like the best quality of life possible. And what about in a school setting? So in a school setting, what does your, what does your job look like? Um, I don't want to say on an everyday basis, but um, let's just say on a normal Tuesday, what, what would you be doing? Okay, in the school setting, you really won't see much of the, the um, dysphagia, the swallowing piece that's more reserved for the hospital setting. But in the school setting, you know, you work with children, you know, K through 12, uh, grades K through 12, and um, anywhere from somebody working simply on their R 
because they don't have their R sound and then it's due to a delay to maybe somebody that has a diagnosis. And because of that, there's communicative impairment, intellectual impairment. We're talking maybe somebody that has autism or somebody with a diagnosis like a Down syndrome or some kind of learning disability. Uh, so it, it varies every day. You know, uh, we have caseloads of anywhere from 55 and up. California uh, max is supposed to be 55. I don't know that always works out that way. At our school district, it does. But you see these groups on a weekly basis, one, two times a week, usually, uh, sometimes more. And you will either see them individually or you will see them in small groups. It really just depends on what you feel is appropriate for the student you develop goals for them and that's what you're working on during the year. So on a regular Tuesday, I'd have a full schedule with kids back to back, small groups, individuals, and we'd be working on different activities, targeting different goals. And any off time would be dedicated to paperwork and parent-teacher communications. That too is part of it. this different group of students that you're working with, do they all have some form of speech impediment or do they have more of a mental disability that you have to work with? Or is there a variety of both? There is definitely a variety of both. So imagine um, I could have a child that is in general education. All of their classes are, you know, mainstreamed, but they just can't get their R. <laughs> you know, they just, that's what we're working on. We're just working on the articulation, getting that R. And as soon as that student gets that R, they will discharge and they will just walk away and continue on. And then we have kids, you know, that have a disability and they're, they're going to stay with us, you know, for the long run because they'll always need support, you know, um, because it's more involved. Maybe they have inability to express basic wants and needs, or maybe it's a little more, higher level where perhaps they have language, they, un they understand and can express themselves, but they don't really know how to interact appropriately in a social interaction, working on conversation skills, maybe staying on topic, taking turns, all of these conventional rules that we take for granted because they come so naturally to us. Some people just don't have them and, and that could be something to work on, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And so now that we are having to work from home, um, I know that, you know, all right, well, let me ask you this first before I actually jump into the conversation of working from home. Your students, are they, are, are they mostly in the classroom the entire time and you're there helping them out or are you pulling them out and working on these individual skills? Okay, so the reason you mentioned earlier that you never saw the speech and language pathologist at our high school right. and there's actually um, a reason for that and it really just depends on the service delivery model. So everybody's different, but there is a thing as a push-in model where the speech and language pathologist would come into the classroom and, and work more of in a collaborative setting, work with the teacher, work with the students, usually a larger group, and conduct a some kind of activity working on, on, on goals. That would be what we call the push-in model. Mm -hmm. Or the one of the more traditional models would be the pull-out model where the specialist would come in, they would pull out the student or how the student would already recognize the schedule and know at this time I have to go come and see us for 
however long the session is and then come back to class. And so when you, um, when you say that you didn't see the speech and language pathologist, it was probably because the students that were getting the services were going to this workspace and not within the classroom. So you never actually saw somebody come in and do it. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. I mean, some people do both. I, I like doing both. It really just depends on the groups that I'm working with. I yeah. work with a, a high school group in their, you know, moderate, severe special day class. And I like going in and I do whole group lessons and we do activities where everybody gets to interact and, you know, do very functional activities. And that's the way we do it. But then other students, you know, say maybe high school where they have a full schedule of classes, um, it might be easier to pull them out during elective classes or during homeroom or, or things like that. Yeah, right. Like I would imagine someone who is having trouble articulating their R's probably won't be so helpful if we're just doing the same thing as everyone else, right? Like you, you would be like, you would need some individual one-on-one practices. Where well, we and I think also, <laughs> also depending on the age, you know, there could be some stigma that comes with that, you know, because right. if you're 10 years old and you're not saying your R's, you know, you sound much different than everybody else. So I think when it comes to that, you, you um, also consider, you know, what the dynamic would be to, to push in or not. Yeah. But with, with that kind of student, it would, generally be more of like a one-on-one or small group that would be most appropriate in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now adding the working from home component, what does that look like if you are, I don't know, if you're either having to pull out or push in for these students that need your help, how, yeah, how are you doing it now that you have to do this virtually? Uh, <laughs> uh, there's no pull in or push out. You just stay home <laughs> and you get on camera. <laughs> um, so right now, uh, the big new, well, not new, but I would say the new uh, mainstream line of service would be teletherapy. And uh, it's not something new. It's been around for a while, but it's definitely become more popular and more of the norm as of late. And uh, what that entails is you are doing your session with the student on the other end. And you can do this individually, you could do it in small groups. I mean, you could even do it in a larger group. So again, it really just when you're planning, you have to consider, you know, who the student is, what their needs are, what the dynamics going to be like, and what you would consider most appropriate and you go off of that. So that has been something new for me, just another learning experience. And it's been an adjustment, but you know, I think that I, I've definitely enjoyed it now that I've been becoming more acclimated to it. Cool. So, so for you specifically, what's it been looking like? Are you are you sitting into some of the Zoom sessions with students and the teacher, or are you just holding your own Zoom sessions where you're individually working with your uh, with your students? I um I have some students that I'm working with individually. And I also have some that are in small groups. Now the small groups are usually two, three tops. I haven't done more than that just because I feel like just getting everybody uh, familiar with the technology and getting everybody on the same page, it's easier to manage that way. Now I will say that I started recently for my high school group. We have um, group social Thursdays. And so on Thursday mornings, they all I invite all 15 of them and normally they don't all show up, but I mean, I have a good, at least half of them will show up. 
and we have like a topic of discussion and everybody gets to share and participate and we working we work on taking turns we work on making sure that we're not looking away if somebody's talking we're making sure we're staying engaged that we're supporting each other and that we're just able to have this nurturing environment that they just don't have right now because they don't get to see each other So what do you think is something that educators can do to best help their students, especially those that have either a disability or some kind of speech impediment? I think right now with this situation, there's this just overwhelming amount of pressure for students to complete assignments, um, for students to be on the computer and all of a sudden be these experts at all these you know, different platforms, same goes for parents. And so I think it's been a very stressful thing unless, you know, there's familiarity with, um, with technology. So I can say that one of the things that I think our students need most right now is that moral support. And just, you know, I think that these students, you know, we don't really know what's going on at home. We don't know what the dynamic is like. And I think that sometimes our students just need to know that you're there for them and that you are supporting them. And if they need anything, they can come to you. I think it's important to use this online learning experience, not just for the business of getting, you know, the academics done, but also just to provide that moral support for our students. And, um, also for, for parents, you know, to be, to make yourself available in that way. Very cool. Well, maybe we'll just uh, kind of start reaching the end of it with this. Um, is there anything else that you would want the listeners to know about you or the work that you do or anything within that realm? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I can say that I was actually going to tell you a story I totally forgot. About so, your little brother? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, our, our first conversation. So... Um, <laughs> He was uh, probably like 10. Okay, so Finding Nemo comes out. Super popular movie. We end up buying the DVD. He watches it all the time and memorizes the script, basically. And, of course, I always hear it because he's, uh, he, you know, was very echolalic. So anything he heard, he would repeat it, uh, whether it was right away or after, but he, he would repeat it. And so he would just start reciting this script all the time. This is somebody who would hardly even look at you, let alone ever have a conversation. Somebody who at the time had trouble just asking for what he wanted and then became tantrums or, or hitting or, you know. Um, so he learns this script. I always hear it from him and I've basically memorized it myself. And one day at dinner, he's saying it. And so I just, I don't know why I just decided to interrupt. And I, I took on Dory. I remember I jumped in and all of a sudden I was Dory and he looked at me a little bit thrown off, but then he continued and we just had this exchange and he was looking at me and I was looking at him and we had this conversation that wasn't really ours, but it was because we were both in it and we were taking turns and looking at each other and just, I think that was the first time that I could say that we actually had an exchange that was meaningful in the sense that we were able to connect 
by something that we had in common, which was a script. And now, you know, he's come a long way. He's completely different. And he's, you know, this is something that I can do with him now about everyday topics. But that was probably our first real conversation. <laughs> so whenever I, you know, whenever I encounter kids that are echolalic, I always think about that, how you could always use that and turn it around to make it something meaningful. Um, and uh, it's just something that's always stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. So that, I was actually going to ask you, I was like, have you ever used that approach on other students or a similar approach? And I have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It looks like you beat me to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, actually, we're going to close out the show by asking you some rapid fire questions. Technically, okay. Good, <laughs> <laughs> I'd be scared. <laughs> what I want you to do is just listen to the question. And then the first thing that comes into your mind, just let it come out. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Shoot. Go. Question number one. What's your favorite color? Pink. What's your favorite movie? I love watching musicals, so I'm going to say Phantom of the Opera. Fair. What's the hardest class you've ever taken? Calculus. I didn't school, think about right? that. Yes. <laughs> AP Calculus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, you you I, know what we call chapter six? What? Chapter six, six, six. Oh, I get it. What? Um, what's a country that you like to visit or have ever visited? Country that I like to visit. Actually, is, I'm uh, sorry. Sorry, can, I'm, I'm going to change that. What's the city that you like to visit or you have ever visited? Uh, I would say that Bordeaux is one of my favorite cities to visit. Would you rather pay in cash or credit? Mm, credit. What's your favorite fast food restaurant? Mm, Chick-fil-A. What's your favorite city in Italy? <laughs> this sounds like it was planned. It was. Um, my favorite city in Italy, I have to say, as of now, I would say my favorite city in Italy is Florence. That might change, but for oh. now, it's Florence. Would you rather have Mexican food or Italian food? I, this one, okay. That's like, uh, okay. I am going to, same, I'm going to say what I thought before i'm gonna say italian because i uh feel like i won't offend anybody that way <laughs> what's your favorite book i could tell you one of my favorite books yeah it's perfect. called house rules it's by jody pickolt oh never never heard of it she cool. does a lot of kind of edge of your seat kind of books mm. where you're wondering who did it in your opinion what does someone need to be truly happy they need to be happy with themselves they need to be okay with who they are and what they're doing. And last question. This one's more of a joke, but what is the least spoken language in the world? Berber. Have you ever heard of that? No. What is that? It's like a really, really rare language. Like I think like only, I remember when I first heard of it, there were maybe like three people that still spoke it. It's a North African uh, language. Well, I, uh, there's a better what, answer. Uh, which one? Sign language. Oh, no, you know what? There's a lot more signers out there than you know. But they're not speaking it. That's true. Oh, I get it now. Oh, yeah, uh, okay. yeah, yeah. Woo! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ashley, and if someone wants to get in touch with you, or if someone wants to know more about the work that you do, where can they go? What can they do? 
Well, I recently started a Instagram page and I've dedicated it to just sharing information about the profession, not only for speech and language pathologists, but also for families, friends, anyone interested. Um, so I do this on a weekly basis. And the name of the account is speech language underscore explained. Um, no caps, no weird symbols, no just speech language underscore explained. Cool. I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. All right, Ashley. Well, it was so nice talking to you. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. And I mean, it's always good playing catch up with you. I really hope you and I get to, I don't know, get to see each other at some point in LA. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Hopefully once this situation all winds down, we'll have to either make a trip to LA or, or hit up NOLA. Yes. If you're ever down here, don't you dare come by without letting me know. <laughs> well, not. <laughs> All right, Ashley, I'm sure you and I will be in touch and uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Take care. Thank you again. Yes, of course. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Education Movement Podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Ashley and her expertise in speech-language pathology. Remember that you can reach out to her on Instagram at speech-language underscore explained. You can also reach out to me at the Education Movement Podcast 20 at gmail.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EDU Movement 20. Any likes and follows are always welcomed and very much appreciated. Until next time, friends, please remember to stay healthy, stay safe, spread love, and spread hope. Peace. <laughs>